So, um, yeah, if you guys have been here, last week we began looking at the third and the final section of the Apostles' Creed, which primarily, broadly speaking, focuses on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And so one of the... Or is it not, not loud enough, Nick? Okay. Um, yeah, one of the works of the Holy Spirit is to bring us into one church. Um, and, but before we get into that, I think it'd be good to just kind of profess what we believe as Christians. So if you would all like, um, could we just stand up and read the Apostles' Creed? It should be down on your sheets um, on the right. Yep. So, Church of Christ, what do you believe? We believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. So, since you all just profess to believing in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, we're going to talk about that a bit, or rather you guys are going to be talking about that a bit around your tables. So let's start with a bit of a warm-up discussion. Um, it should be down there on your sheets. Just those first two questions. So since you just profess to believing in the church, how would you explain the church to your non-Christian friend? Um, and the second question, today we're going to be looking at some attributes of the church. Um, so why might it be important or relevant for us to know these things? We're not going to, don't discuss kind of what those things are first, but particularly just why is it important to know the attributes of the church, maybe. So just round your tables for a few minutes. Okay, let's um, draw back. Let's yeah, draw the discussion to a close. And um, yeah, we'll come back. So we, we won't do any feedback today, so I hope your discussion at your tables was good, but um, I'm not going <laughs> to take any questions, um, at least for today. So yeah, I don't know what you guys talked about at your table. There's probably lots of things you could have mentioned, um, but hopefully you guys kind of got somewhere to this point where when we refer to the church, what we're actually talking about is a people. So it's not a place. The church is not the pews, the programs, or the pulpit. It's the people who are the church. Um, and specifically, you could say that the church is the visible congregation or gathering of God's people here on earth. And so when the creed actually, when it talks about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, it's really talking about one and the same thing. Um, the church and the saints are just two ways of describing God's people. And it's important to be clear right from the start that what we're going to be talking about today um, is about, about the church. It's actually true of the global church of Christ. These are not characteristics or attributes of Christ Church Central Leeds as if we stand on our own, but rather these are true of us as the local ex expression or congregation, as well as along with many other local congregations or churches that together make up the global church of Christ. And so what we're seeing described in the creed are actually what are traditionally called the attributes of the global church. 
And this morning we'll be particularly looking at three attributes. So that the church is holy, Catholic, and a communion of saints. And these attributes must be pretty important if the early Christians thought that they were actually worth writing down at a credo level. So these are not just some fun facts about the church or um, buzzwords you regurgitate to prove how well you know the Apostles' Creed. They're, they're relevant for us today because they describe who we are as a church. And on one hand, that's a great comfort for us to know that as part of the church, God has already made us these things. But on the other hand, it tells us what the church is meant to be. So it directs our lives, our living, as part of the church of Christ. And really, these are not just attributes of the church as it exists today, or even of the church as it exists after Pentecost, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. These are attributes that have always been true of God's people here on earth, even before they were known as the church or the saints. These are things just as true of believers in the Old Testament as they will be of believers a thousand years from now. They're just as true of Adam and Eve in the garden and us sitting here today in the Favisham. These, these things, these attributes, is what the church is meant to be in every age. It's what the church is and is meant to be in every age. So let's just dive right into it. So the first one down your sheets there, the first attribute that the creed describes of the church is holy. The church is a holy church. And really, holy is one of those words that we use quite often in Christian circles and even outside of it, as such that it can become easy to forget what the word itself means. Generally, people have the idea of holiness as being a good person or someone who does what is morally right. Um, you think of phrases like holier than thou or the idea of Christians growing in holiness or certain sins being a holiness issue. And those meanings of the words are true and they're important for us as Christians. But actually the word holy in and of itself simply refers to something that is set apart. So when we say we believe that the church is holy, we're not saying that we think the church is sinlessly perfect or anything like that. No, what we're doing is we're declaring that we, as a church, have been set apart by God for God. So Paul describes this in his greetings to the Corinthian church. In um, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2, it's down on there on your sheets. Um, I think, yep, it is. Um, and so he addresses his letter to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. So sanctified here in the Greek, which is the language of the New Testament, it's just the same root word as the word for holy. It's, it's basically the verb form of the, of the holy word. So you could actually kind of understand it or translate it as um, Paul writing to those holified in Christ Jesus. And the important thing to note here is that this, as Paul describes it, is a done deal. Those who are in Christ are already sanctified. You are already made holy. It's not something you need to earn or achieve or do anything for. If you are in Christ, you are holy. It's much like with the items in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. You know, the furnishings of the tabernacle, you can think of the various altars or the utensils, the lampstand, the basins for washing. All of these things inside the tabernacle were holy. 
I mean, not because there was anything special or morally good about these objects in and of themselves, but they were set apart for the special and sole use of the service and worship of God. And just so it is with the church, actually, which in many ways is the New Testament equivalent of the tabernacle, we, as the church, are set apart for the service and worship of God. This is what it means to be a holy church. We have to be distinct from the world around us. We have to serve God and God alone. So background your tables, um, the next discussion, uh, the two questions down there on your sheets. So what might it look like for Christ church to live as those set apart for God? Um, and the second question, how does knowing that we have already been set apart by God help us to live holy lives? So what we normally think of when we hear the word holiness. So just a few more minutes, um, back around your tables. Okay, let's just um, draw back together. Yeah, so we won't be doing feedback again, but um, yeah. What does it look like for the church to be set apart for God? Um, and there's lots of things you could say, and um, I won't be able to cover all of those things. But I guess one of the big things, simply put, um, it's to be following the numerous holiness commandments that have been given throughout the whole Bible. It's what we normally think of when we hear the word holy. You know, you think of things like abstain from sexual immorality, pray ceaselessly, love one another. Um, a set-apart church looks like we, the saints who make up the church, living out our lives in such a way that glorifies and honours God by keeping his commandments. I mean, frankly, given the current climate and direction of the world and culture around us today, just simply living out in the way that God commands us to do will almost instantly set us apart from the world in just so many various ways. And so, and really these two ideas that we have already been made holy and that we are still commanded to be holy are tightly linked. I mean, it's why Paul can still address the Corinthian church as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and then immediately go on to say, called to be saints. So the word for saints, again, is the same word for holy. Um, it's just saying you're called to be holy. So even though he has already described them as those who are holified, you could say, in Christ Jesus, he says that they are still those who are called to be holy. I think the order here actually has some significance. Um, Paul reminds the Corinthians who they are, that they are already holy first, before calling them to grow in their holiness. He's grounding our growth in holiness in our set-apart identity. We have the confidence, I guess you could say, to live out our lives set apart because God has already set us apart, has already made us holy for him. And so whenever you, when you're struggling to be holy as God is holy, you can be encouraged by the fact that God is calling us as a church, calling you, to become more like who you already are, to become more like who he has already made us to be. So moving on, the second attribute that the creed describes the church as is it describes the church as Catholic. So that should be on the flip over your sheet to the next slide. Um, and I know we've got a few new people here today, so if you're a bit confused and wonder, did I walk into the right church this morning? Let me be the first to reassure you that Catholic here does not mean Roman Catholic in the denominational sense. 
I mean, Catholic is just kind of an old-fashioned word for universal. And so what we're basically saying here is that the church is a universal church. The church has no, what we're saying is that the church has no geographical or national or racial boundaries. It does not belong to any one nation or people group. Right? As Paul says in verse Corinthians um, 1 verse 2, the same verse back on the front of the sheets, um, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctifying Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The church includes those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the only dividing a line that we are allowed to draw between those in the church and those outside the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot restrict entry to the global church for any other reason apart from unbelief in the Lord Jesus. And so even though actually, um, even though God's people in the Old Testament were primarily centered around the nation of Israel, it's incredibly good news for us today that entrance into the church is not based on our ancestry or blood. Since I don't think many or well, maybe any of us here are of Jewish descent. And really actually, it's not even the case that it's back in the Old Testament, it's only Israelites, and then post-Jesus, the church suddenly becomes Catholic. No, even in the days of the Old Testament, the church has always been Catholic on the basis of belief and trust in God. Just think of people like Rahab, a Canaanite, or Ruth, a Moabitess, um, or Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army. I mean, these are people who belong to nations that are not just neutral parties. These are people who are active enemies of the people of God. I mean, Naaman himself fought against Israel. He killed Israelites and dragged off the survivors into slavery. And yet, even to these people, even to people like Naaman, people who by nature and circumstances of their birth were enemies of God, and yet they were allowed into the Catholic people of God, even in the Old Testament, because they believed in God. And these are people who are very much like us today, we too who are born into enmity with God, we are by nature children of wrath. And yet we too are allowed to come into God's Catholic people because we call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, while the church is full of many different people from different races and countries and backgrounds, we're all still one church. There's a unity despite this diversity. And that brings us to the third and final attribute of the church that we're going to be covering this morning. It's the part of the creed that talks about the communion of saints. I mean, you can think of this attribute kind of as the oneness of the church, perhaps. So we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It's how the Nicene Creed puts it. And this idea of communion, much like holiness, is a word that we kind of throw around a lot. Um, but it basically refers to it's, it's the idea of fellowship or participation. It's a very close association between people. Um, and actually, in a very real way, you are much, much closer and more connected to the person sitting next to you and across from you, assuming you're both Christians, um, than you are to actually your unbelieving family members, whether they be your parents, siblings, or even your own children. But actually, you're not just in communion with saints alive today but with all the saints in ages past and ages to come. 
Paul in Romans 11 talks about the Gentiles being grafted into the olive tree of Israelite believers. You see, it's not two separate trees. It's not one tree for Old Testament believers and then in ages past, and then one tree for believers in the present and future. No, it's a single tree of all believers joined throughout all of time and space. Um, I think I put one John down there on your sheets as well. Um, so that, sim- that talks about, the Apostle John it talks about how we are drawn into the fellowship of the apostles, um, despite the fact that the apostles have been dead for 2,000 years. I mean, we are still in fellowship with them. Um, yeah. And so if there's one person that prizes this oneness of the Holy Catholic Church, it's actually Jesus himself. So John 17, uh, down there on your sheets. So this is um, the part of what is commonly known as Jesus' high priestly prayer, if you come across it. It's Jesus during the Last Supper, the night before he's crucified. He gets up and he prays for, in front of his disciples um, for three groups of people. He prays for himself, for his disciples, and for our purposes today. He prays for all those who would believe because of the words of the disciples. In other words, on the night before Jesus died, he prayed for the church. He prayed for us. And specifically, he prays, I do not ask for these only, referring to the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Now, of all the things that you might expect Jesus to pray for the church on the night before he dies, the chief thing he actually goes for is the oneness, the unity of the church, that they may all be one. And probably the most remarkable thing about this prayer is that Jesus compares our oneness as a church, as a body of believers, as a communion of saints, with that of the unity in the Trinity. He prays that above all, above all else, the church, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. I mean, it's such an incredible thing. It's almost unbelievable if it wasn't down there in the Bible. I mean, there aren't many things in the Word of God that is compared to the oneness of the Trinity themselves. And yet here, this is precisely what Jesus is asking for. It's precisely what he's praying for, for the church, for us. It's the kind of thing that you will almost hesitate to pray for yourself. That the church the body of believers be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. Really? But actually, Jesus is able to pray these things because in verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Somehow, mysteriously but surely, the Holy Spirit draws the saints, draws us, into the relationship between the Father and the Son. And we want to be very, very careful here because we are treading on holy ground when it comes to the inner life of the Godhead. But we don't want to lose sight that this is an amazing thing. That as the church, when we have communion with the saints, we're not just communing with one another, but we are actually communing with Father, Son, and Spirit as well. We are drawn into the inner life of the Trinity almost. What a privilege, I mean, honestly, to be allowed into the fellowship of the triune God. That they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, 
that they may be perfectly one. So final discussion time, back around your tables, from John 17, just dust those few verses down there on, on the sheets. Um, yeah, looking at that, why might it be a serious thing to disrupt the unity of the church? And then a bit more kind of thinking application-wise, what are some things that you could see that might threaten the communion of saints here at Christchurch? So just for a few minutes around your tables. Okay, let's um, draw back together once again. Um, yeah, I know that's, that's a big discussion and there's lots of things we could say about that. So... Um, yeah, but for the sake of time, we probably have to move a bit on. Um, yeah, we won't do feedback again, but if you guys have any questions, I'm happy to chat about it after, after the Sunday school, after the service. Um, so, if the unity of the church I mean, is compared with the Godhead himself, then is it, we really must take it seriously indeed. Um, I mean, of course, nothing that we could ever do can really break the oneness of Father, Son, Spirit. I mean... We as mere creatures can't possibly affect the uncreated God. But there's almost a sense where doing anything to wrongly disrupt the communion of saints is almost as foolish and grave as attempting to sow discord in the Trinity itself, if you can even fathom something like that. It might be helpful to think of it this way. So marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Now, if a married person commits adultery against their spouse, that in no way affects the actual marriage covenant between the church and Christ. But it is an affront to what God has put together and made one. And so likewise here, to attack the oneness, the unity of the church, is akin to attempting to to tear the image of the Trinity itself trying to rend asunder what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have made one by drawing us saints into their perfect union. And that is a very grave matter indeed. But another reason breaking the communion of saints is such a serious issue is that Jesus, when he prays for the unity of the church, verse 21, he prays that it is so that the world may believe that you talking about the Father, have sent me. Ultimately, the oneness, the communion of the saints, is evangelistic. It declares the good news that God has sent us his Son, that God has made us one, not just with each other, but even with himself, the God of all things. And so when we wrongly divide the church over various issues, we are actually severely hindering our own evangelism. It weakens our witness. We are inadvertently, but really, truly, casting doubt in a world that looks on us as the church. Doubt that the Father has really sent the Son. Doubt that the Father really loves us, really loves the saints, as much as he does the Son. Now, if all that feels heavy, it should. Because these are serious and weighty matters of God and of the church. But they are only so, they are only heavy because these are precious truths. And to do anything to jeopardize them is tragic indeed. The truth that God has made us perfectly one with believers all over the world, all throughout time. And the truth that we are, in a sense, I mean, I almost hesitate to put it this way because it just sounds too good to be true. 
but that we are drawn into the inner life, the very fabric of the Trinity, brought into deepest relationship, deepest possible relationship with God himself. This is a precious truth given to us, the church, that we must endeavor to protect. And it is the sure evidence that we have of God's surpassing love for the saints. So brothers and sisters, these are some of the glorious attributes of the Church of Christ that we profess, that you have all professed to believe in. But more than that, these are privileges that we get to partake in. No matter who we are, we are welcomed into the Holy Catholic Church. No matter what we've done, we've been sanctified, made holy in Christ Jesus. And no matter how alone you may feel at times, we have fellowship a participation with all the saints, and even with Father, Son, and Spirit. And these are the things we need to protect as the church, to watch out that we don't make what is holy profane, that we don't unnecessarily restrict what God has made Catholic, that we don't rend asunder the church that God has made perfectly one. But praise God that even in our weakness, when we end up failing to uphold these attributes of the church, God is the one who has already made us a holy Catholic church, already made us a communion of saints. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you so much um, for your grace that we can see just in who we are, Lord, who you have made us to be. Thank you that you have made us holy despite our sin. Thank you that you have welcomed all of us in, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, no matter our past and our history. And Lord, thank you that you have made us one, just as you are one with the Son, Father, and that we are drawn into your very fellowship of the Trinity. I mean, thank you so much for this great truth and these great privileges that we can barely comprehend, let alone explain. And so, Father, we just pray that you give us the strength, Lord, to really live our lives in this way, to live out in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, Father, that the world may look on and see and know that you have sent your Son to save us, that you have loved us um, even as you have loved the Son. And so, Father, thank you so much um, for who you have made us to be. And we ask this in Jesus' most holy and precious name. Amen.